Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. And would you agree with me that it is really nice to have words back up on the screens that you can read? Yeah. I want to thank everybody that worked diligently to get all that kind of put together and, and uh, accomplished for us. And uh, now we're just hoping that lightning leaves us alone and uh, we can just continue. We're trying to get everything put back. We've still got a few little things here and there we've got to get, uh, get fixed, but uh, the big stuff. We're, we're grateful that we've gotten it done, so it's good to have, uh, good, good to have all that behind us. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, and while you're making your way there, I, I wanted to just remind you of an episode that we read about in the, in the Gospels of the life of Jesus and his disciples, particularly it comes from Mark chapter 4, you'll be familiar with the story, Jesus is out on a boat with his disciples. And uh, suddenly a, a great and violent storm came up. Wind began to blow, waves began to, to rush over the bow of the boat. And, and the disciples are just scared. And, and it's really, you had to know that this was a big storm because some of those disciples at least were professional fishermen who made their life out on the Sea of Galilee. And so for this, this storm to scare them, you know it had to be a big one. But the interesting side about that, Mark 4 tells us, is that Jesus is asleep in the boat. He, he's, he's, he's resting and taking a nap while, this, while all this storm is going on. Well, he was resting until the disciples went and woke him up. And they woke him up and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we perish? And so Mark tells us that Jesus got up and that he hushed the waves and he, he calmed the, the, the seas and everything just became tranquil. And suddenly, all of these disciples who had been fearful over the storm that they were encountering were now feared, fearful uh, even greater because Jesus had displayed his command and his authority over his creation. And they said to, it, to one another, who, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And suddenly what we recognize is these disciples were more afraid of this man in the boat with them than they were of the storm that had threatened to capsize and drown them. They had been captured, we might say, by a reverential awe and a holy fear. Now, I wanted to relate that story to you from Mark's Gospel this morning because I believe it's going to help us get our minds wrapped around this passage that I want us to consider here in Acts chapter 12. And I want to read what amounts to the whole passage for you. We'll leave verse 25 uh, for another time, but I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 24. And before I even read it to you, I just want to give you the, I want to read the bookend verses. I want you to see from kind of a, just a general overview, I want you to see the bookends that come here because verse number 1 of Acts chapter 12 tells us this. It says, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now that sets the context for us. That tells us that, that the persecution of the church is what we're going to be seeing is, to, is the backdrop of this entire chapter. But then notice what we read in verse 24. In a lot of that persecution, read verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. You see that? Herod stretched out his hand to persecute the church. But the word of God grew and it multiplied. It's, it's kind of like 
I'm reminded of the old uh, Energizer battery commercials. That bunny. The word of God and the power of the gospel. It just kept going and going and going and going. And you know what? It's still going and it's still going. And it's still going even today. And that should rise up within us a question and go, well, what is the power? What is the fuel? What is, what is, the, the, what is that sense that's propelling that gospel forward even all the way to the ends of the earth even today? Well, in reading the book, in reading the book of Acts, we can only conclude that the continued growth of the gospel and of the church came at the sovereign hand of God. It was the sovereign hand of God working behind the scenes oftentimes. God ruled and worked according to His eternal purposes. He often, did, he often did that through events that on the surface would have seemed to contradict or oppose His rule. Sometimes those events were unsettling and they would have even caused fear. But nevertheless, what we find out is that through those events that God orchestrated and worked through and behind, we actually see that the gospel was propelled forward. When we actually consider that and we think about it from a biblical perspective, we're drawn back, at least I am, to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that tells us that God truly does work through all things. He works through all things. No matter how bad they may seem, no matter how hard they may be for us to understand, no matter how difficult they may be for us to endure, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that perspective brings us face to face with the immense power and the immense might of our sovereign Lord. And that is a power that, that causes the gospel to keep going and going and going and going. And we, as we will see from our passage today, if a power like that, well, it ought to fill you with awe. It ought to amaze you. It, it ought to drive within you this reverential fear and a holy worship of King Jesus who sits on His throne. And I'm going to go ahead this morning and give you my sermon in a sentence before I even read the passage. I'm getting that far out today. I'm giving it to you way in advance. So I want it to be in the back of your mind when we're reading through this because what I want you to know this morning is this. Who or what you fear determines who or what you worship and who or what you worship matters. We're going to see that from our text today. So let's begin reading Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door was being before the door were being kept uh, the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, "Arise quickly!" And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, "Gird yourself and tie on your sandals." And so he did. And he said to him, "Put on your garment and follow me." 
So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they got past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now, all the while, we might say, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning them to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. Now, this is not the James of verse 2. This is, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was in the church at this time. So he says, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become to Peter, of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew, and it multiplied. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to be in this place, to open our Bibles in front of us, lay them on our laps, read your holy word. and Now we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it. We want to be changed by your word. We want to be good students of your word. We want to be able to, to, to learn how to study these, these words. But Lord, we pray that it would not just be something that's, that's done just for our, for our minds, but that it, it goes all the way to our hearts and that it impacts the way that we live. It impacts the way we see the world around us. It impacts the way that we engage our lives. We want it to, to make a difference. So Lord, I ask that you would do that in my life today, do that in the lives of these, my brothers and sisters, as we spend time together studying your word today. I also want to pray for some families in our church that, Lord, are struggling this morning. There are some who are hospitalized. There, there are some dire straits, there's some folks that are facing some illnesses, and I just want to lift them up to you. I pray for your healing hand to be upon them. I ask that by your strength that you would give them the, the ability and the, the, the help that they need during this time. Be with their families, Lord. I know that, there's some, that they also need your strength and to know your peace. 
So I pray today that you would, you would do that which that you can do. We know that you're the great physician. We know you're the almighty God. We're going to be looking at that today. We pray that your will would be done and we ask for healing. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now to help us get an overall sense of what I believe this chapter is communicating to us, um, I've identified a number of contrasts that we should, I believe, recognize and examine from this text. And, and in fact, that's how I've set up your outline today, that you find it there in your, in your bulletin. I've set this outline up just to just help us see some contrast that, that occur. And the first contrast that we're going to see this morning occurs between James and Peter. That's the first point on your outline. It's the contrast between James and Peter. Now, this chapter begins by describing what happened to these two apostles. Uh, these two apostles were close friends of one another. In fact, you go back and you read in the Gospels, you'll find out that, that James and Peter and, and John, James, uh, James's brother, they were all fishermen up in the Sea of Galilee. They were likely on that boat that we talked about earlier, some of the ones that were very fearful for their own lives. They made their lives out on the... On the and they were, they were business partners even at times for one another there in, in, in the Galilean region. Um, not only that, but with, along with John, James's brother... Peter and, and James kind of formed that inner circle of three disciples that Jesus tended to invest a lot of his time and energy in. Uh, not just the twelve, the larger, but they were the smaller inner circle that Jesus invested a lot of his own personal life in. And then what we just see is that Peter and James, they have been linked together since we are first introduced to them in the Gospels. But what we notice is that with very little fanfare, according to verse 2, in violent outrage against the church, James is killed by the sword at King Herod's command. James' death was met by much approval of the Jewish people at large because they too were intent on persecuting the church. And so Herod is so pleased with the response of the people that he decides, hey, I'm going to arrest Peter too. I'm going to put him, I'm going to have the same thing done to him that I did to James. This has gotten me a lot of popularity with the people. I'm going to go at it the second time. Only he would have done it sooner, but, but it, it happened at the time of unleavened bread, which, which means it was right at the Passover time. And so he could not immediately execute Peter because these were during holy days. And so in order to just kind of hold on to him, he put him in jail and he had these guards to watch him. And his intention was is that after the days, the holy days had passed, he'd bring Peter out, he'd have a mock trial, and he would kill Peter just as he had killed James. But the sovereign Lord had other plans. Notice, notice what happens. God dispatches an angel into the cell where Peter was chained in order to release him. But do you notice that he gets there and Peter is asleep? Peter's sleeping. In fact, the angel had to strike him on the side to wake him up. Here Peter is, imprisoned, awaiting his own execution, and he's asleep. Remind you of Jesus? On a boat, in the middle of a sea, where there's a storm all around and he could still sleep. You think Peter hadn't learned a little something by this point? Well, the angel wakes him up. But notice that as soon as he does, the chains fall off. The angel tells him to get dressed. He leads him out of his cell. He leads him to these, this set of iron gates, which Luke says just hey, had opened of their own accord to him. It's like he walked up and 
And, and it just like, you know, open says me, he just, it just opened up right there. And there they go, they walk out, they go walking down the street, and, and the, the guards and the sentries never saw a thing. Now that's amazing just in and of itself. But I love, I love this detail that Luke includes there in verse 11. He says, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You, you, you get the sense of what Peter is saying there? He thought it had been a dream. He thought this was just a vision that he was having while he was sleeping. But it was so much better than a dream because it was real. It was actually happening. In fact, here he is. He, he's out there on this in the night air by himself and, and he kind of comes to his sense and he says, Everything that I just witnessed is a real thing. It's like a dream, but it's not a dream. It's real. It's even better than a dream. And then I find it amusing that Peter goes to John Mark's mother's house where they've been having this all-night prayer session for him. And he knocks on the door and and the servant girl goes out and hears his voice and she recognizes it's Peter. And instead of opening the door for him, she goes back in to tell everybody else, look, Peter's outside. He was the one they'd been praying for and she left him out there in the street. That, that one. But it was, it was because she was so overwhelmed with joy at what it was. And of course, the ones on the inside said, you're out of your mind. They, they basically said to her, look, you, you, you are, you're, you're crazy. They thought that she was having a dream. But she wasn't. As good as that was, as exciting as it was, as joyful as it was that Peter was alive and he'd been released from prison, they all thought it was a dream, but it wasn't a dream. It was real. It was even better than a dream. Here's where the contrast comes in. Because you see, though Peter's life is saved, Peter is delivered from prison. Remember that James, Peter's friend, and his fellow apostle, is dead. If, if Peter's deliverance is like a dream, then James's death would be like a nightmare. Because you see, no angel came to his defense. No angel came and miraculously delivered him from Herod's hand. And we might just contemplate that contrast there and just ask, well, why? I mean, the power was obviously available. The same God that delivered Peter could have delivered James. So why didn't he? I mean, did God love Peter more than he loved James? Had James done something wrong so that God allowed him to die? Had Peter done something right so that God allowed him to live? Why? I doubt there's one of us in this room that has never asked that question. Some of us probably even asked that question today. Why? Why, why would this happen? Why did one person get sick of a disease and, that ultimately killed them while another person contracted the same disease and, but they were healed? Why is one person born into what can only be described as horrible circumstances while another person is born, as we might say, with a silver spoon in their mouth? Why does it seem as if some people get all the breaks 
while other people only hit roadblocks at every turn. Why? The truth is, you and I will never be able to answer those questions satisfactorily. Only God can answer questions like that. God alone is sovereign. Hear what the psalmist writes in Psalm 115, verse 3. He says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. The psalmist writes in Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Daniel writes this in Daniel 4, verse 35, the Lord does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. Oftentimes, passages like these and and thoughts about the sovereignty of God cause many to become uncomfortable. The truth is, we like a God that will be there at our disposal and do whatever we want Him to do. But a God who does according to His will and does what He wants, well, that often causes us to shift uncomfortably in our seats. That's why I say to you that the awesome power and the sovereign nature of the majestic God of heaven that is revealed to us in the Scriptures should drive us to a reverential fear and a sense of holy awe. And the reason that is so important is because who or what you fear determines who or what you worship and who or what you worship matters. Now very clearly, we read that Peter lived and James died. And I submit to you that both outcomes were the sovereign will of God. Both outcomes were what was best. Now, from our perspective, Peter got the best end of the deal. I mean, from our perspective, being executed would be one of the scariest things that could ever happen. But listen to what Jesus says. (coughs) Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Listen, based upon what Jesus says, if your greatest fear is tied to living and dying in this life, then quite possibly you've never truly considered what happens after you die. The fact is that all of us will die sooner or later. And scriptures tell us that after death comes judgment. Therefore, we should fear the one who is the righteous judge before whom we will stand, every single one of us. I'll say it again. Who or what you fear determines who or what you worship. And who or what you worship matters. That brings me to the second contrast that I think bubbles up from this text. If you look at it uh, from the perspective that we are this morning, the second contrast that I want you to see this morning is between Peter and the people of Tyre and Sidon. It's the contrast between Peter and the people of Tyre and Sidon. You'll notice that down in verse 20, we're introduced to these folks from Tyre and Sidon. And a little background will help us understand the context better. The people of Tyre and Sidon 
had been suffering from a severe famine. And they had become dependent upon the Jews for food. But for some reason or other, they had, they had irritated King Herod, who was the king of the Jews at this point, and they'd made him mad. And so now they were in danger of losing the assistance that the Jews had been providing them. So in true political fashion, they bribed Blastus, who was King Herod's right-hand man and his personal aide, and then in turn, Blastus convinced Herod to, to meet with these people from Tyre and Sidon and, and to, to have a meeting with them. And it was an important opportunity for the king to, to display his proud uh, splendor and his glory, and it was also an opportunity for the people of Tyre and Sidon to, to please him with their flattery. And Luke tells us that, that, that King Herod showed up in his royal apparel. The first century historian Josephus says that the robe that, that Herod wore to this encounter with the people of Tyre and Sidon had silver kind of woven into it all up and down. And so it just shone in the sun. And he strutted out there and he wanted everybody to know he was the big man on campus and he took his place on the throne and that sun shining down and he looked so good. And he began to speak. We're not told what he said, but the people went, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen and heard in my life. And they began to applaud him. And Mac, they began to say, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, it's obvious. It's obvious why they were doing that, right? I mean, when you know the background, you understand why they're doing that. They're doing that because, because they're fearful of King Herod. They feared him because they knew he had the ability to cut off their food supply and starve them to death. But they also recognized that he could be merciful to them and he could continue to feed them. So in their fear of Herod, they chose to flatter him even to the point of proclaiming him to be a god. But now let's contrast their behavior with that of Peter. You see, in many ways, Herod had the same power over Peter that he had over the people of Tyre and Sidon. As Peter sat in that jail cell between two guards, he was at Herod's mercy. Herod could have released him if he wanted to, but he had already declared what he was going to do. And, and so Peter could have tried it on his own to become flattering. He could have flattered Herod for all he had done. He could have chosen to disassociate himself from Jesus and from the church. He could have told Herod that he was, he was pledging his support to him, but Peter didn't do any of that. Why? Because Peter didn't fear Herod. In fact, as we noted earlier, he was so at peace with his circumstances that he went to sleep. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they were so afraid of Herod. Peter, Peter feared the Lord. As a consequence, he was able to sleep peacefully even though he faced execution. Therefore, once again, let me point you to the driving thought behind this passage. Who or what you fear determines who or what you worship. And who or what you worship matters. That brings us to the next contrast that I have listed for you on your outline. The third one that I want us to see is between James and King Herod. Between James and King Herod. I think it's important to note that this chapter it begins and ends with a death. In verse 2, we read of James dying. Down in verse 23, we read of Herod dying. In verses 22 and 23, 
tell us the circumstances surrounding Herod's death. Just as we've noted, in their fear of the king, the people of Tyre and Sidon declared that his voice was that of a, of a god, not of a man. But notice in verse 23, Herod didn't correct them. He knew better, but he, correct, he wouldn't correct them. Which reveals that he showed a lack of humility. It also reveals that he had a lust. He had, he had what we might say an undying hunger for adoration and praise. Let me just say this to you, what you lust for, what the undying hunger that you have in your life, the thing that you desire most often reveals what you're the most afraid of losing. I think that was the case for Herod. In fact, some would even say that's why he was in Caesarea to begin with. He, he had gone to Caesarea because he had been in Jerusalem and everything was great so long as he had killed James and had Peter arrested. But when Peter suddenly escapes from some reason and, and, and it shows that Herod could not keep him in prison, he escapes out of Jerusalem to go to Caesarea because the people were no longer praising him like they had been before. He feared losing face with the Jews. He feared not being praised among the people. And consequently, when those people of Tyre and Sidon began shouting out that his voice was that of a God, not of a man... Herod welcomed every bit of that until the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Herod accepted that which was not rightfully his, but which belonged to God alone. And Luke goes on to tell us that Herod was eaten by worms and he died. Now, I don't care who you are, how strong your stomach is, that's gross. Why did Mark include that? I think he included it on purpose because notice, the king had strutted out there in all of his regal apparel, shining like the sun with all of that silver in his robe, establishing his dominance. He gave this speech, caused everybody to go crazy, probably a standing ovation. They hooped and hollered. Shouted all kinds of things to him. Told him that he was a God, not of a man. And the next thing you read about him, he's dead. And his corpse is being consumed by worms and maggots from the inside out. And what the text is clearly communicating to us is that while Herod may have looked beautiful from the outside, he was rotten on the inside. But let's compare Herod's death with that of James. And admittedly, as we've already seen, there's very little information given to us about James' death. All we're told is that he was killed by the sword, which most probably means that he was beheaded. And this was not the normal way that Jews were executed, which may also indicate to us that James was mistreated, his body was mutilated and mistreated. But nevertheless, what should be noted is that while we find out very few details of James's actual death, the Bible tells us in Psalm 116 verse 15 that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And therefore it should be noted that at the very moment that, that his earthly life ended, James realized the prayer that Jesus had prayed for him and for all of us in John 17 verse 24. Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
And so if we consider the contrast between the death of these two men here in Acts chapter 12, what we realize is that while one angel strikes Herod down because he is filled with pride and he refuses to give God the glory, another angel ushers James into the very presence of God. Why? Because what you, who or what you fear determines who or what you worship. And who or what you worship matters. That brings me to the last contrast that I want to point you to this morning. It's the fourth one on your, on your list there. And we're contrasting the word of Herod and the word of God. Now, in many ways, we've already said everything that really needs to be said about this. I simply just want to point out to you that Herod, who had just been praised as having this voice of God and not of a man, well, he is immediately silenced. His mouth is permanently shut because he is struck dead by an angel of the Lord and his body is eaten by worms. But according, according to verse 24, in contrast to the word of Herod, which is no more, the word of God grew and multiplied. It just kept going and going and going and going. And that brings us back full circle to where we started today. When we ask, what is the fuel that propelled the gospel forward and caused the church to grow rapidly? And what we realize through all the various instances that we have encountered in this chapter and throughout the rest of Scripture is that it was nothing less than the sovereign hand of God who ruled according to His own desire and worked according to His sovereign purposes in order to propel the gospel forward till it reached the end of the world. Think about it this way. I love how Stephen Cole has put it. At the beginning of Acts 12, we have James dead, Peter in prison, and the tyrant Herod basking in popularity and power. At the end of the chapter, we have Peter free, Herod eaten by worms and dead, and the Word of God growing and multiplying. Luke is showing us that the gospel is unstoppable. And if you oppose the gospel, what we see is that you may temporarily win, but you will finally lose and you will lose big. But if you stand for the gospel, you may temporarily lose, but you will finally win and you will win big. Since God is almighty, no force can stop the spread of His gospel according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, that is an incredibly important lesson that we all must learn. You see, like those disciples who encountered the sheer power and the authority of Jesus when He hushed the winds and He calmed the seas, and they fell before Him in reverential awe and holy fear, so you and I must fall before Him in worship and in praise. Through His Word, we encounter that same power and that same authority. And what it forces us to consider is that same truth that we have said over and over again this morning is who or what you fear will determine who or what you worship and what, who or what you worship matters. Let me ask you bluntly this morning, who or what are you fearing? I believe that there are many whose fears are improperly placed. Listen, if you look strictly from a horizontal perspective, 
There are many reasons that you can find out there to be fearful. This pandemic, your health, the economy, your job situation, your family situation, what others think about you, there are no way that we could list all of the various things that people are fearful of. All kinds of reasons. And I'm not diminishing the impact of any of those things that they have upon our lives. But I want you to know we do not just live our lives horizontally. We live our lives under the vertical, sovereign God of heaven who sits enthroned above the earth, sees everything that occurs down here, and is the sovereign God who controls all things. We need to remind ourselves of what the Bible says in Psalm 27, verse 1. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you know what that means? It means that God is sovereign. It means that He is in control. And that that means that so often our fears are misplaced. We fear everything else that comes along when what is absolutely imperative is that we fear God. Solomon put it this way in the final chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Final verse, Ecclesiastes 12.13 Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me say this to you this morning as clearly as I can. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Him to be the Lord and the Savior of your life, then you do not fear God. Because God has decreed that Christ is the only hope for sinners to be saved. The message of the Scriptures declare that God has sent His one and only Son into this world to become the perfect sacrifice for sinners. He lived the perfect, sinless, holy life. The life that you and I could never live. But He died a sinner's death. The death that you and I deserve. And as such, God has declared that all who will by faith trust in the atoning work of Jesus will be saved from the penalty of their sins. On the other hand, if your faith and your confidence rests in anyone or anything else, then you are saying that the death of Christ is of no value to you. And to do so is to stand before the holy God of heaven and declare that His offer of grace and mercy is not good enough. It is to declare that you have no need of Him. It is to declare that who God has established as the only one worthy of your confidence and your faith and your holy awe and your reverential fear, it is to declare that He is deficient and that He is unworthy. To put it bluntly, to reject God's offer of grace through Christ is to demonstrate that you do not have a proper reverence and a holy fear of God that you should. Listen, if that is the case, then you have every reason to fear. Because the Scriptures declare that apart from faith faith in Jesus Christ, sinners like you and me will stand condemned before God and we will suffer the penalty of our sins for eternity in hell 
where the Bible says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But the good news, the good news is that God has made a way for sinners like you and sinners like me to be saved. But know this, that way is narrow and in fact it is exclusive. The Bible declares clearly that there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ who himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of your holy fear and your reverence and your worship because he is the only one who can save you. Which is why I drive you back to that sentence that I've repeated so many times this morning. Who or what you fear determines who or what you worship. And who or what you worship matters because your eternal salvation depends upon it. And brothers and sisters, that is why I stand here week after week after week after week and open this word and declare unashamedly and unapologetically to you. Run to Jesus. He is our only hope. I don't get tired of preaching that message. It's the greatest gospel news that anyone could ever hear. I try to tell it to you publicly here. I try to live it out in my life and I try to tell it to those that I come in contact with in a personal way. Who or what you fear determines who or what you will worship and what you, who or what you worship matters because your eternal security depends upon it. And so consequently, we come face to face with Jesus once more in this passage. And we come face to face with the gospel. And so I declare to you today the same thing I declare every week. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you that in our own lives we can see where you have been the majestic God who has stepped in and done some awesome, mighty things that we would have never been able to accomplish on our own. And, and Father, all across this room, if we were to take testimonies this morning, we would see again and again and again how you're the sovereign God who can still cause the wind and the waves to be hushed. Lord, there's some of us in this room that are hurting because truthfully, we would, have, we would have written scripts that we're living out in our lives differently if we'd had the opportunity. I'm sure that James's family were brokenhearted over his death. Just as the people were elated over Peter's deliverance. And yet we know that with you there are no mistakes. We know with you, we can trust you because you're a God that loves us. You're a God that's demonstrated that love through Jesus. And so you've not, you've not demonstrated your love to us through Christ and then abandoned us to our circumstances. No, you're still God and you're still sovereign. Even when our hearts are broken. So I thank you. I thank you that we can know, that we know, that we know that you love us. And that you will walk every step of our lives with us, even through the difficult moments that we face. 
the challenging things that come into our lives that, that rock our world and cause us to cause it to take the breath out of us because we're so scared and yet we realize that we can trust you even in spite of all. So for my brothers and sisters here this morning, I pray for that. I pray that you would steal their hearts and steady their, their legs underneath them as they face the difficulties of the life around them knowing that you are a sovereign God that loves them and is in charge. And for those that may be here this morning who have never come to know you as their Lord and Savior, my prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would convict them that they stand before you unprepared to meet you. And that they would come before you and in repentance and in faith. That they would confess their sins and place their confidence and their faith and their trust in you, their only hope. Move in among our people this morning. Let your Holy Spirit work and we will praise you for all that you do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.